Welcome everybody to the Life After Pain show and today we have on the line Valerie Delorne who's the author of a range of books on treating trigger points including trigger point theory, therapy for headaches and migraines, trigger point theory, therapy for foot, ankle, knee and leg pain and a therapy workbook for lower arm pain. Valerie has studied massage therapy, trigger points, dry needling and acupuncture and has had a clinic for more than 20 years and works to help people get out of chronic pain. In this interview, we'll look at the treatment of trigger points that cause headaches and migraines. So, welcome Valerie, it's great to have you on the show. Thank you, Naomi, for inviting me to talk with you today. So, let's just dive right into it. Um, I'm wondering, what, what are the common mistakes you see when people are trying to treat trigger points that cause headaches and migraines? Well, the first uh, mistake I commonly see is that um, people aren't using the pain guides enough. For example, um, if somebody's feeling pain on the very top of their head, the muscles that need to be checked are the sternocleidomastoid and splenius capitis, which is found in the back of the neck, sternocleidomastoid in the front of the neck. If somebody's feeling temple pain, like kind of above the ear but between the forehead, then the trapezius muscle needs to be checked, which is kind of the upper back, mid-back, and the back of the neck. The sternocleidomastoid in the front of the neck, the temporalis, which is in the local area, and also some of um, the posterior neck muscles. And so when, when all of these muscles are checked, if somebody's just kind of relying on uh, coming across them randomly, they're probably not going to get all the muscles that have trigger points in them. Headaches very commonly, especially if they've gone on for any length of time, are usually a composite of uh, trigger points in various muscles. The second um, thing I see most commonly missed is that the perpetuating factors, that would be the things that cause trigger points to form and keep them activated, don't get addressed enough. And there are many things that you need to consider uh, in, in the underlying causes of trigger points. Otherwise, the, even if you can relieve symptoms temporarily, the symptoms will keep coming back if the underlying causes are not addressed. Okay, when you say the pain guides, do you mean trigger point charts? Yes, trigger point charts. And I see that you have some on your website. Uh, all of my uh, books do include trigger point pain guides. They originally were developed by Dr. Janet Travell, the mother of trigger points in the United States. And um, I have used those in all of my books, but they don't seem to be present in all of the books that I've looked at. And I just have noticed in my tr when I train trigger point therapists uh, or massage therapists and other providers, PTs, physical therapists, physiotherapists, that this isn't something that has really been taught in very basic trigger point trainings uh, very frequently. So if you're looking at, say, a trigger point chart and you have a pain, say, in, in the side of your head, how would you go about making sure that you're not missing any trigger points? Well, so for example, and, and I don't have your set of charts to look at, but looking at my set of charts, um, like I said, in the side of the head, you know, the, the, in the, the temple area, the ones I mentioned, the trapezius, sternocleidomastoid, temporalis, and, and posterior neck muscles would be the ones that would be most commonly referring pain to the side of the head. If you're talking about something more in the ear area, the lateral pterygoid, which is in the facial muscles, and the masseter also in the facial muscles, sternocleidomastoid, 
uh, in the front of the neck and the medial pterygoid, also in the facial muscles, uh, would most commonly refer to the to the ear. So these areas are all broken down in um, in in trigger point charts. Uh, well, I, I sh- let me take that back a little bit. A lot of charts show common pain referral patterns, but they don't necessarily include pain guides. Some of the charts do, and some of them don't. So it does help to look at um, to look at trigger point charts that have the common pain referral patterns on them. But you also need to keep in mind that with trigger point charts, they're just showing some common trigger point referral patterns. It's not, it's not all of possible trigger point patterns. It's going to be different from person to person. That just gives you a starting point of where to look. But the pain guides actually will show the area um, being described of where the patient feels pain and then gives a list of muscles that could potentially refer pain to that area, at least the most common ones. It may not be all the muscles, but it is the most common ones. Okay, and so when you say pain, guys, this would be, say, in um, Travell and Simon's, there's two red volumes, or in, in, in your book on headaches and migraines, you also have that. Yes. For, for every section that Travell uh, and Simon's have in their books, they start with pain guides with a list of muscles that might refer pain to a particular area. Is there a muscle that's commonly missed when people go to treat headache pain? Uh, Sternocleidomastoid, I would say, is one of the most common uh, muscles that are missed, and it can refer pain to the face and also to the forehead and to the sides of the head and, and to the ears. And even in some of the studies I've seen on trigger points, and uh, headaches and migraines, the researchers did not uh, check the sternocleidomastoid for trigger points, and I think it's a very important muscle to check if somebody has headaches, and that muscle is located in the front of the neck. Are there any dangers um, in treating, say, the sternocleidomastoid? It's in a pretty you know, sensitive area in the front of your neck, if someone's self-treating themselves, for instance. Well, I think if it's treated properly, sometimes people press on it and they could press hard and that makes me a little bit nervous. If you pinch and pull on the muscle, you're not going to put anybody in any danger. And I actually will teach it as a self-help technique. Now, the scalene muscles, which are actually on the front of the vertebrae, I don't teach that particular muscle for self-help techniques. It doesn't directly cause headache pain. But um, sometimes one of the perpetuating factors of uh, headaches and migraines is head forward posture where somebody's, if you looked at somebody from the side and their head is way forward of the center line of their shoulders, that's head forward posture. And uh, scalenes can be involved in head forward posture. So sometimes the scalenes have to be treated for headaches and migraines, even though the trigger points in the scalenes don't directly cause referred pain to the head. Right. Okay. That makes sense. Earlier you mentioned the trapezius muscle, and as I understand it, this is a really common trigger point, but it's also one that, um, I'm not sure why, a a lot of people find that it's either difficult to turn off completely or it often comes back. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yes, I do. Um, One of the things about trigger points is kind of of a chain reaction. And when I'm working on somebody's trapezius muscle, I always start in the mid-back and work my way upwards. Even though the um, most common trigger point that causes headaches is found um, in the top of the trapezius muscle in terms of like on top of the shoulder, it's 
called the upper trapezius trigger point, and it will cause a referral pattern that can go up the back of the neck and over the top of the ear and into the temples. But if you but the lower trapezius trigger point, which is in the mid back, will activate the upper trapezius trigger point. So if you don't treat the lower trapezius trigger point first, and the the trigger point in the upper trapezius muscle is a satellite trigger point it's going to keep coming back if all you treat is the upper trapezius trigger point. You also need to treat all of the perpetuating factors that will keep trigger points in the trapezius muscle activated, and there are a lot of them. Okay, cool. I think uh, definitely um, I want to explore and get into the perpetuating factors, but first I'm wondering if you could clarify something because um, anyone who's had a migraine will know that it's a totally different ball game from a headache. So could you just talk about how trigger points work with those two different types of ailments? Okay. Um, well, there are, a, a, a migraine is actually a type of headache. Um, tension headaches are a very common type of headache and it can be, you know, just as, as the word describes tension, like holding your tensions, holding the tension in your shoulders, you know, people tensing up there their head and neck, but there are other perpetuating factors that can all get wrapped up into that. Now, migraines will typically um, get diagnosed with, you know, other things like auras and, um, you know, flashing lights and nausea and perhaps even vomiting. Uh, but trigger points can still be a very high uh, cause of migraines. And in fact, there have been studies shown that pressing on trigger points can actually activate all of the migraine symptoms. One thing that tends to get forgotten about trigger points is that they cause symptoms aside from pain. So they might cause dizziness or ringing in the ears or nausea or even vomiting or belching or urinary frequency. And so the symptoms with migraines can also just be a result of trigger points. Now, they do tend to have um, some different perpetuating factors than what are commonly known for trigger points. But really, when you look at the perpetuating factors, it's many of the things that are also um, perpetuating factors for trigger points in general. For example, migraines, um, the most important perpetuating factors are allergies, uh, environmental stressors such as diet problems, uh, including caffeine, rebound medications, alcohol, tobacco, nutritional problems, emotional factors, hypoglycemia, and sleep problems. Well, those are also things that will cause trigger points in other muscles that will cause symptoms aside from headaches or migraines. So um, sometimes a migraine can just be, you know, I've actually had have patients that I solved their migraine problems by having them drink more water. Uh, they just, you know, and stop drinking alcohol and stop drinking caffeine. And that's what it took to, to get the trigger points to stop activating. But I would say that with, with certainty that trigger points are always at least a part of migraine pain and that the underlying uh, causes of the migraines are also underlying causes of trigger points. That is really interesting. I haven't really, I haven't heard many people talk about the fact that they generally just associate trigger points with muscle pain, really. So that's fascinating. Yeah, I actually have some charts on my website, Trigger Point Release 
com. That's with an F, and, and I'm sure we'll have a chance to um, you know, give out that information at the end. But I actually have some charts that you can look up under my link to the headache book, and it's got um, the perpetuating factors for the different types of headaches. Um, it's got headache types by symptoms, so you can um, diagnose them a little bit better. And also, um, a headache and migraine diary, I think it's very important to keep track of, the, you know, what triggers your migraines because it's going to be different from person to person. What what may aggravate one person is, isn't necessarily what's going to aggravate another person. So on my my headache and migraine diary, I ask things like, where's the pain? What's the intensity? What other symptoms? What were you doing at the time? How long and how well did you sleep last night? What did you eat, drink, and smell and hear within the last 24 hours? What were you feeling prior to the onset? What made you feel better? What made you feel worse? And and some questions about menstrual cycle. So people can start to see a pattern emerge once they start tracking their symptoms day by day. That's interesting because um, I, I read in your book how you say that it's really important to combine self-treatment. Even if you're going to see a professional, to have a self, you know, self-treatment component of that as well. Yes, it's absolutely true, especially because, you know, patients, if, if they're having a, you know, just a really splitting migraine, debilitating migraine, they're not going to feel like going to their appointments. I, I encourage them to go anyway, even if they feel badly. But it's important to to treat the trigger points even while you're not having a headache or migraine. In fact, I, I'd say it's even more important to treat it at that point to prevent them from coming on. And so self-help techniques, you know, because you can do those every day, whereas you're probably not going to see a health care provider with that type of frequency. It's really great to also see a health care provider, especially one that knows about trigger points, so they can kind of keep checking your your self-help techniques and, and help keep you on task with discovering your perpetuating factors and, and just really figuring out what your particular triggers are. Uh, so I think it's very important to do both. And I, I would say that's not true for just headaches and migraines. That's very true in general. I, I like to tell people that my patients who do their self-help techniques get better at least five times faster than those that just come to me for treatment. Huh. Interesting. Are there any trigger points that you've noticed um, more commonly for migraines as opposed to tension headaches? That cause tension headaches? Well, are there any trigger points, like if you look at migraines versus uh, tension headache, are there any trigger points that are more causing of migraines or more causing of tension headaches, or they're pretty much the same? Well, it, it really depends on the person and their particular set of perpetuating factors because you have to go by where they're feeling the symptoms, not by whether it's a tension headache or a migraine. You know, somebody, one person who gets a migraine might feel it behind their eye. Somebody else might feel it in their temple. Somebody else might feel it in their forehead. Um, you know, what, what really makes a lot of the difference is uh, the additional symptoms aside from pain. And most people with migraines will get tension headaches in between their migraine attacks. So it, it, it is a lot of the same muscles. I might even venture to say, and, and I can't say this with certainty, not having done the research on it, but that people with migraines will have more trigger points than somebody that is just having tension headaches. That's my theory and my experience from treating patients. Right. As far as um, self-treatment goes, are there any particularly hard to find or deep triggers that people might need some specific 
advice on? I wouldn't say that they're hard to find. I think uh, some people are better at finding their own trigger points than other people. Um, some people need more coaching with with self-help techniques than others. Uh, there are some that are more challenging, like the sternocleidomastoid muscle is a harder muscle to teach people to work on than, say, the trapezius muscle. Um, it, it's harder to explain the positioning on, on the best way to treat the sternocleidomastoid than it is to explain the positioning on the trapezius, which is basically laying face up and laying on a ball or using a back knob or, or some other device to apply pressure to trigger points. So there are some muscles that are a little, little trickier than others. Um, and, and people do have to keep in mind they have to search the entire muscle for trigger points. So the harder it is for somebody to visualize what the muscle looks like and where the possible range of trigger points are, um, the the harder it will be for the person to treat the muscle. You know, another thing as, uh, that, that uh, both providers and people who are trying to treat their own trigger points need to keep in mind that the trigger point charts are only showing the most common location of trigger points, but trigger points can actually be located anywhere in the muscle, not just in the middle and not just at the attachments on either end. I, I really emphasize to my patients and in my books that they need to, to learn where the entire muscle is and uh, how to work on it. So, for example, the sternocleidomastoid, people tend not to get high enough up against the base of the skull. And when I work on them, I can check their self-help techniques because I can tell what they've been getting and what they haven't been getting. And a lot of times people won't get quite high up enough to the base of the skull. So that would be an example of what you're asking about. Okay. Yeah, that's interesting. So, I mean, what is it that you tell people to feel for when you say, okay, say take the trapezius for example, assume that they know where the muscle is. What do you tell them to actually feel for? Well, I, I guess the, the biggest thing they're looking for is tenderness, um, you know, and, and, when you're self-treating muscles, it's good for it to hurt a little bit to stay within your pain tolerance level. So I tell people it should hurt good. If you're tensing up or holding your breath or trying to fight really hard not to tense up, then the pressure is too great, in my opinion. Now, there are a lot of other techniques out there that work, but that's the technique that I use. It's, it's just to the point where, where it's slightly uncomfortable. So primarily they're looking for tenderness. If they're not finding tenderness, there's probably not a trigger point there. Okay, because, I mean, yeah, that's interesting. I've, I've talked to a lot of people who have gone to get a trigger point treatment and, and they haven't wanted to do it again because it was either very painful or, or it, some people said quite a few, actually, that they, they ended up with bruises. So um, that's interesting that you can have a pain a relatively not very painful technique that's also effective. Yeah, well, and, and one of the reasons that I say that is that one of the things that, that aggravates trigger points is muscle tension, like tensing up your muscles. Well, if somebody is working on you hard enough to bruise you, you're probably tensing up while, while they're working on you. And, and like I said, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to um, put down anybody else's technique because there are a lot of things that work out there. 
Um, I, that's just the technique that I particularly ascribe to is not to make it so painful for the patient. It particularly makes sense if you're recommending um, treatment, you know, every day or every second day, then you ideally you want something that's not going to cause any physical damage. Yeah, and, and one of the things in my guidelines for trigger point therapies, because sometimes people will be sore uh, for for one day, if they're sore for two days, I actually do have them wait a day. And uh, if, if they continue to be sore, I ask them to stop doing the self-help techniques until they've had a chance to talk to me. That would be the patients that see me in person. Um, it could be that they're using the ball too aggressively or whatever tool that they're using. Um, a lot of people will think more is better, and I, I don't ascribe to that. I go with eight seconds to a minute per spot. You can come back to a spot. Uh, you can go once a day. If you're not getting sore from that, you could possibly go up to twice a day, though I don't think it's, it's typically necessary. Um, so I tell people to start with once a day unless they're getting too sore. And if they're getting too sore, I have them back off. If they have a lot of tenderness, like let's say they've got widespread trigger points from fibromyalgia, they may not be able to tolerate uh, much pressure at all. And I don't want them to feel worse after their trigger point treatment. So I like people to actually back off on the pressure um, and or the number of treatments or the frequency uh, until they're not uh, sore for more than a day. Right. That's a really good measure. And I mean, that's something that we do get asked a lot as well. Um, how often should I treat them? And that's a really practical, useful measure that people can apply. So, yes. yeah. Um, and... Speaking of questions, one of the most common questions we also get is trigger points that come back. Why do they come back? And this would probably be the, the right moment to transition to perpetuating factors. So, yeah, to perpetuating factors. Yeah. They, they will, well, there's a couple of reasons. One, if, if something has gone on for a very long period of time, the central nervous system gets involved and there's a positive feedback cycle. It's like the more something hurts, the worse the trigger points are, the worse the pain is, the worse the trigger points are. And it's called central nervous system sensitization. And so sometimes even if the original cause of the trigger points is no longer present, uh, then, then the cycle can go on all on its own unless there's some kind of intervention. Um, but there are things that very commonly um, cause and perpetuate trigger points that um, often don't get addressed, and that will cause trigger points to come back. Um, but before we move on to perpetuating factors, the other thing that that commonly causes trigger points to come back is if, if is if a satellite trigger point has is the only one that's been treated. So I gave the example earlier of the trapezius muscle, where the upper trapezius muscle kept getting treated and the patient felt better, but until you treat the lower trapezius trigger point, it's going to keep reactivating the upper trapezius trigger point because it's within the zone of referral for uh, referred pain for the lower trapezius point. So that is one thing. If the primary trigger points are not being treated and only the satellite trigger points, but I do want to talk about perpetuating factors because this is one of the most common things that, that gets overlooked and yet is one of the most important things to address with trigger points. And in fact, Travell said that you can resolve trigger points just by, uh, uh, or sometimes uh, uh, resolve trigger points just by 
treating the perpetuating factors without any local kind of treatment. Now, I wouldn't um, just just rely on it, but it is an extremely important thing. And so some common perpetuating factors are things like misfitting furniture. You know, maybe people that cradle the phone between their ear and their shoulder or they're hunched over their computer or the, the screen's not at the right height or they don't have armrests on their chairs, or maybe their pillow on their bed is, it has their head at the wrong angle. So there's a lot of things in our day-to-day life that will cause and perpetuate trigger points that, that can be fairly easy to fix. For the example, with the phone, uh, a, a, um, a headset on the phone or using the speakerphone is something that is inexpensive, very easy to try, um, and this would be something that's very important with some some who has headaches and migraines is checking their posture, their work posture, how they use their body. Um, are their glasses right? Or are they kind of hunched forward looking and squinting at their computer screen? That makes perfect sense. And I mean, that's something that probably I certainly have been guilty of. And I imagine a lot of the people, you know, we often work for hours, especially if we're absorbed in a task. Um, with a computer or or in, in other work where it's ne- definitely not optimal, and as you say, it could cause trigger points, which then might cause headaches further down the line. Correct, correct. You know, and use you know body mechanics is another one. Just using your body improperly, certain professions will be more apt to um, cause and aggravate certain types of trigger points. So, for example, a dentist or a dental hygienist who spend much of their day bent over somebody's mouth, uh, you know, just by the necessity of their profession, will tend to develop trigger points in their neck and trapezius muscle. So I look at what somebody does for a job and also what they do for fun. Uh, Like, let's say somebody is a swimmer and they're doing the crawl stroke and they're always turning their head to the right to take a breath. That's incredibly hard on the trapezius muscle. Or riding a book, uh, I'm sorry, a bike, you know, hunched over some handlebars with the net, with the neck, you know, and head uh, facing forward. That's really a hard position on the neck and trapezius muscles. So I spend a lot of time looking at people how how they use their bodies um, and what their furniture is like. What are some um, simple guidelines you can give for people that work on computers a lot? Uh, making sure that you have a chair that's adjustable in a variety of ways. A lumbar support is really important to posture. Um, if, if you're, if you, I don't know if you're sitting in a chair right now, but if you kind of experiment with, you know, if you kind of bend your low back outwards, it really shoves your head forward. Whereas if you've got a nice curve supporting your lumbar area, it brings your head back over your shoulders. Uh, armrest supports. Um, so that your arms are, uh, your elbow and forearm at about a level position. Uh, look at the keyboard height. There, there's a lot out there on the internet pictures of proper posture and ergonomics for um, for office furniture. Uh, if somebody has the opportunity to bring a specialist in who can look and see how they're sitting and help them adjust the height of their computer screen, uh, adjust the keyboard. There's, there's a lot of good equipment out there now that can really help people have a lot better posture. Uh, taking breaks is, is a good one. You mentioned you know, sitting at the computer for long periods of time. 
sometimes somebody might need to set a timer across the room, which forces them to get up for a few minutes and stretch um, instead of getting so wrapped up in their work that they aren't moving for hours at a time. When it comes to head forward posture, how do people know that if they first if they're doing it? And then um, for people that I've talked to who want to improve their posture, they say they, they keep slumping forward and then having to correct themselves and, and, and so on. What, what would you recommend for that? They're actually, well, for one thing, you just have somebody look at you from the side, and I mean, it's, it's obvious whether someone's head is too far forward or not. The ears should basically be over the, the center line of the, the top of the shoulders. Um, but it, it's, it's retraining yourself not to have head forward posture, and one of the ways to do that is to stand against a wall and have your head touch the back of the wall, and just kind of practicing that several times a day and it, it, it reminding yourself to move your head back. I mean, just, it just takes some work and some attention. Maybe you need to set an alarm to remind yourself to do it every 30 minutes, uh, but it is just a retraining thing and also working on the muscles. You know, if you don't work on the muscles, if you don't get your vertebrae back in alignment, uh, then, then that will also perpetuate head forward posture, but it is a lot of retraining. Are there any exercises or stretches that you recommend for people who want to, like, that could be useful in this situation? Well, there are, but they're, they're too hard to describe over the phone. Uh, enough, I yeah. do have them in, in my books, uh, and, uh, and I think that you have some on your website that you've got some products for stretches and posture. And uh, so I would recommend to your um, to your, um, the people that, that uh, your members, that they look at the, the products that they have on your website too. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a hugely important topic and, and you see, like if you stand on the street and, and watch people going by, you'll see people of all ages with posture that, that's not optimal and the sad thing is that the longer you hold that posture, the... Um, the harder it is to get out of it, basically, as it becomes an ingrained habit. Yes, that's absolutely true, and that's why I say it takes several times a day and, and a real commitment to learning to um, hold your head properly and also to breathe properly. Breathing can make a big difference in, in the muscles and, and how you hold your body. Um, there are some other perpetuating factors. I do want to address uh, some systemic problems like nutrition, uh, you know, like having a poor diet, and I believe you have some of that uh, information on your website too. Um, but having the prop proper vitamins and minerals, you know, especially if if a patient comes in and tells me they're getting muscle cramping, the first thing I do is look at things like calcium, magnesium, potassium, and salt intake. Uh, some people don't actually eat enough salt; they've kind of taken it a little too far to heart about eliminating salt from their diet and they may be on the doctor's advice which of course they should follow the doctor's advice um, but if people sweat a lot and they're not taking any salt in and they're getting muscle cramping that can be causing a problem too so I look at pe what people are eating uh, what supplements they might be uh, taking uh, another thing is if they're not absorbing nutrients like let's say somebody with chronic diarrhea the diarrhea needs to be addressed. And as an acupuncturist, I can address that. And there's other, you know, it, you might need tests, you know, make sure you don't have a parasite uh, 
to to make sure that you get rid of the diarrhea. But if you're if if the food is passing through your system that quickly on a chronic basis, you're not going to get the nutrition that you need from your food, and your muscles are going to feel the difference. Um, there might be some nutrients um, that the body needs more of. Maybe somebody's drinking a lot of alcohol or smoking, um, which deplete vitamin C and some of the B vitamins, and that can cause muscle cramping. Um, there are high-risk groups such as bad dieters, um, elderly people, um, pregnant women, uh, alcoholics, drug users, people who aren't eating well because of emotional distress, or maybe somebody who's just very seriously ill for one reason or another and they're not able to um, keep, keep the nutrition in their body or to get nutrition in. Um, a big one, a really big one, is caffeine. Caffeine can actually cause what's known as, as rigor. So the muscle, um, the muscle cells will contract and stay contracted. And Dr. Travell and Simon said that as little as uh, anything over uh, a cup a day of regular coffee can cause rigor of the muscle cells. So um, I have found a lot of people feel a lot better once they uh, cut back seriously or eliminate their caffeine. Um, water, I mentioned a little bit earlier, especially with headaches and migraines, it's a very simple thing to try to see if it'll uh, help somebody feel better. Um, and people should be doing about half their body weight um, in an amount equal to the number of ounces of water. And I don't know how to convert that to liters. Sorry about that. But uh, about two quarts of water a day for most people, more if they tend to sweat a lot or if they're uh, you know, a larger person, they might need more than two quarts of water a day. But that's a pretty good rule of thumb. Okay, I'll have to have a think. I'll have to look up what that is in liters. But cool, two quarts. All right. Um. Okay, so those are the main perpetuating factors, and if people look into those, there's a lot of great resources on on how to um, how to test out basically if if that's if that's something that's going to make a difference. Right, and there are some others. I'll just I don't know how much time we have left, and I'll just um, go over them very briefly. Injuries are a very common uh, source of of uh, the, the instigation of trigger points. Uh, spinal and joint misalignments. Um, I regularly use, use, sorry, use chiropractors, osteopaths. Um, problems with the disc, bone spurs, stenosis, uh, skeletal asymmetries, where like, where perhaps a leg is literally longer than the other. Uh, sleep problems, and there's a variety of reasons for sleep problems, and I go through all, you know, many possibilities in my books. Emotional distress, anxiety, depression, anger. Um, chronic or acute viral, bacterial, or parasitic infections, even like colds and flu, can easily reactivate trigger points in the sternocleidomastoid. So if somebody's getting a lot of headaches and migraines and they get a cold and flu, um, then I have to retreat their sternocleidomastoid muscles. Um, allergies, I think I kind of touched on that a little bit earlier, food or environmental allergies, hormonal imbalances, so like menopause or puberty, um, and organ dysfunction is dis or disease such as hypothyroidism, hypoglycemia, and gout can all cause and perpetuate trigger okay. points. So that's kind of like yeah, the quick list of the main causes of trigger points. That's a big list. <laughs> um, I'm wondering list. where would where would, where's the place to start if someone's listening to this and they've got um, tension headaches or they have migraines? Where would you start? Well, um, as I mentioned on my website, triggerpointrelief.com. 
Um, there is a chart that says headache trigger points and perpetuating factors, and I've listed the headaches out by type, like migraine without aura, migraine with aura, tension headaches, and the most important perpetuating factors is in the right-hand column, and it tells you the most common ones. Um, but one of the things I encourage people to do when they read my books is to really go through the perpetuating factor chapters, to read them, reread them, pick out some things that they think are possibilities, and start with one or two things. You can't possibly address them all at once and be successful. It's just, it's too overwhelming for somebody to try and do 10, uh, you know, 10 muscles that you have to do pressure for trigger points and 10 muscles that you have to do stretches and 10 different perpetuating factors. People won't feel successful because they won't be able to do it all. So I tell people to pick like two muscles to start with for the pressure and if they have time, do stretches. Pick two perpetuating factors that they think are the most likely ones and work on those. And then as they address those, they can add other things in. Um, it is helpful to also be seeing a provider who can help prioritize those for you. Um, but many people don't have access to a provider that is, that is you know, really trained in trigger points. So they, they might just be reliant on themselves but it, it is very important to address the perpetuating factors for lasting relief. Okay, so coming up to the end of the interview, so before we go, I've just got a few questions for you. Um, the first one, uh, your site, triggerpointrelease.com, is that correct? Yeah, T-R-I-G-G-E-R-P-O-I-N-T-R-E-L-I-E-S, as cool. in Frank. Not not S. Okay. <laughs> Triggerpointrelief.com. And those charts that I mentioned are under the link at the top that says headache book, companion materials, and all of those, uh, the, the headache diary worksheet and the perpetuating factor charts are found under that link and they are free downloads. Great. So we'll link to that underneath this interview if, you, if you're listening to it anywhere else at lifeafterpain.com is where you can find it. And the question that I, that I ask everyone that I interview is um, if there's one thing that you would recommend people doing right now to get back to a healthy, active life, what would that one thing be? Well, you know, aside from buying one of my books and signing up for your website, <laughs> uh, I would say, um, you know, stopping, well, okay, oh, it's so hard to pick one. Yeah, um, no, it is. You know, <laughs> it's a hard question. <laughs> I would say regular exercise, uh, moderate, mild to moderate exercise is, is just something I see people um, missing out on in the, their daily lives. And I think it's so important to medical, I'm sorry, excuse me, mental and physical health that, and, that uh, people just aren't taking a few minutes to themselves. And I think it can really just make a huge impact on somebody's life if they can just go for a walk for 15 minutes a day and be quiet and do some breathing and enjoy nature. Um, that and uh, cutting down on caffeine, I would say, have to be the two most important things, I think. Brilliant. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. I mean, just some exercise specifically out in nature I found for myself, it just helps everything, you know, it helps your, your stress levels, um, it helps you make endorphins and, and deep breathing and, and just has a, a whole variety of really good effects. 
So it helps you sleep better too. Exactly, which is incredibly important. So Valerie, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time and you've shared some fantastic resources and excellent advice, which is advice that you have gained over decades of experience treating people. So really appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you, Naomi. I really appreciate talking to you today.